You are listening to the Talking with the Expert series presented by the CS Mod Center for Human Growth and Development. Uh, welcome everybody to uh, the CS Mod Center for Human Growth and Development, talking with the experts in women health and reproduction. Uh, my name is Gil Moore. I am the director of the Mod Center. I'm hosting this series of lectures, talking to the expert in subjects of uh, women health and interest for the community. Uh, we are delighted to have this uh, month uh, an expert in pregnancy and vaccination, as well as in infections during pregnancy, to cover a subject that is of high interest uh, today, uh, especially when we are dealing with a pandemic of COVID-19, but more important, dealing with the challenge of vaccination during pregnancy. And my host is Dr. Bernard Gonick. Thank you so much, Bernie, to come and join us today. We're really looking forward to uh, discuss this, this very important subject. So if you don't mind, I think we are vaccinated and we are keeping social distance so we can talk without covering our faces. Uh, Bernie, why don't you tell us a little about yourself before we start? Um, sure. Uh I'm uh, here at Wayne State University. I'm a full-time faculty member uh, in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, and I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist. That means I deal in more complicated pregnancies. I have a longstanding interest, as I think uh, you've said, um, in infectious diseases as it relates to the uh, pregnant woman and uh, for gynecology uh, care. Um, and uh, I've long had a longstanding history of vaccination related to pregnancy as well. Fantastic. We're really, really looking forward to the discussion. And again, I would like to invite, uh, as we open for the questions for the public, please feel free to take this opportunity to ask the questions that you were afraid of asking. But I will start, uh, Bernie, what is really MFM, maternal fetal medicine? What is your, your expertise or when the people who we talk about MFMs? So we're a heterogeneous group, I would say. Uh, to be a maternal fetal medicine physician, you first would go through a OBGYN residency program. So that's four years of residency. And then the fellowship training is typically about three years. And during those three years, we concentrate on uh, medical complications in the pregnant woman. Uh, we concentrate on uh, fetal related uh, concerns and abnormalities. We do a lot of prenatal diagnosis. There's a lot of genetics involved in what we do. Um, sort of the short answer is that we deal in high risk or complicated pregnancies, whether it's from the maternal side or from the fetal side. So you really look at the pregnancy and its impact on the babies. So you are really the right person for today. <laughs> so let's go and start with the questions. What are the risks of infections during pregnancy? So if we're talking about um, infections in general uh, and not just COVID, mm -hmm. um, there are a number of infections uh, that can occur in a pregnant woman just as if she wasn't pregnant. And for the most part, she can tolerate those infections quite well. And the fetus is relatively protected. There are a few exceptions to that where if she becomes infected during the pregnancy, uh, the infection can go across to the baby and can cause damage to the baby. Cytomegalovirus as an example, or Zika as an example. Um, but for the most part, uh, the pregnant woman uh, is quite capable of handling most bacterial and vaginal infections. Um, again, there are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, uh, we don't see that as a significant problem. So it's not real what many people think, oh, a pregnant woman is a weaker person, we have to protect it, put it in a box, and 
keep us separated from from seeing friends or, or activities or traveling or things like that. So, so I think no, I think a pregnant woman is generally able to tolerate most environmental exposures and um, challenges that uh, that come along during pregnancy. There are some exceptions to that, and there are reasons why you want to protect a pregnant woman from certain types of exposures and infections. But for the most part, um, I think it's too simple. And, and you're actually yeah. the more the expert than I am. But it's too simple to simply say that a pregnant woman is therefore an immunoincompetent or yeah. uh, attenuated or not able to manage uh, infectious diseases. For the most part, they certainly can. And I think SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, is an example. So would you tell us a little, what is COVID-19? So the term COVID or COVID-19 refers to the disease state that is caused by the um, uh, SARS virus or the, co the coronavirus uh, type 2 virus. Uh, and it was first identified in um, late uh, uh, 2019 in China. Uh, again, there's still studies going on to really understand um, where the uh, infection first came across into um, humans uh, and how that infection was then propagated, but started late uh, 2019. And from there, um, like many uh, respiratory infections caused by coronaviruses spread, but this one happened to be much more uh, capable of spreading uh, and seemed to have a virulence that was uh, above what you would see for other more common coronaviruses. And so this is what's led to what we now call the pandemic. The pandemic, so it fixes. And then going back to the, going to your area of expertise, and I think what the public and everybody wants to know today, uh, is this virus able to infect the placenta? I mean, the, 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 the barrier between the mother and the baby is able to infect the placenta and the baby? It's a great question, and I think the answer is still not 100% clear, but I think most of the data seem to suggest that although the pregnant woman can get infected with um, the COVID uh, virus, the coronavirus, um, there isn't clear evidence uh, that it crosses the placenta, infects the placenta, or can reach the baby. In fact, the overwhelming majority of data that's currently available says that the baby is, in this regard, somewhat protected. There are interesting case reports, you know, one or here, that, you know, one or two case reports here and there uh, that talk about uh, what appears to have a fetal infection involved. But this data has to be more carefully looked at because, again, yeah. the preponderance of the evidence is that, is that the baby does not get infected if mom's infected and the infection itself does not cross the placenta. So, Vesomeras, what you're telling us, it, there is no evidence that really in the majority of the cases, a pregnant woman is more susceptible, is in danger of getting infected of the placenta of the baby. So the baby is well protected. Right? Yes, I, for, for COVID, it seems like it's really the maternal infection that concerns us. And when the mom gets infected, if she becomes uh, overwhelmed by the infection, that can certainly in a secondary effect, affect the baby. But a uh, direct infection of the baby, I think most of the evidence suggests that doesn't occur. So that brings us to the mother. I mean, we care about the mother in this case, uh, the pregnant woman. What is your experience of, of uh, dealing with pregnant women that were infected with COVID-19 here in Detroit? So we're a busy institution and we see a lot of uh, patients. And unfortunately, in our population of patients, we also have those that are uh, more vulnerable to infection for a variety of different uh, reasons. Uh, and so we see our share of COVID-infected uh, pregnant patients. 
Interestingly, um, as many hospitals do, we routinely test every one of our pregnant patients that come in through labor and delivery, even if they're not symptomatic. And we identify mm -hmm. somewhere in the range of three so, to- Sorry to interrupt you. When yes. you say asymptomatic, and could you elaborate a little more? What do you refer to as asymptomatic or symptomatic? So if a patient, a patient can be infected with the uh, uh, COVID infection, but have no symptoms or have okay. few symptoms. Uh, and that's who, who I'm referring to as asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic or a patient can come in, be infected, and have clear, obvious, overwhelming infection, fever, cough, pneumonia, um, a variety of different serious infections that can occur with COVID. Um, what we see is the overwhelming majority of patients that get sampled when they come in through labor and delivery, uh, if they're COVID positive, 80, 85% of them are asymptomatic. In other words, they don't have signs, clear signs of infection. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of positivity, we see at least presently somewhere between three to five to maybe 8% of those patients coming through who are positive for routine testing, not antibody testing, but um, PCR testing for COVID. So the presence of the virus. For the presence of the, of the organism itself. Yeah. Um, so it's not so common, but common enough that we see it on a regular basis. And again, fortunately, most of these women are asymptomatic. They don't okay. have uh, overt signs of infection. But unfortunately, those who do become symptomatic, well, those are the ones we certainly worry about. And, and do you see difference in terms of the symptoms of pregnant woman compared to a non-pregnant woman? So, is the disease more aggressive or what do we know about that? So it appears as though um, when pregnant women don't more easily catch the infection. Yeah. And if they get infected, they tend to have the same or similar symptoms as if they were not infected. The problem lies is when their system gets overwhelmed. Because of uh, anatomic and physiologic changes related to pregnancy, uh, for example, if a pregnant woman with COVID now has a lower respiratory tract or, uh, or pneumonia, that's a patient who can then get very, very sick. And that's where we see differences between the non-pregnant population and the pregnant oh, population. That is interesting. Pregnant women with COVID who have um, serious infection, those are the patients that have a much higher risk for being hospitalized, for being put on a ventilator, for requiring a, a extra ventilatory support like ECMO and have an overall uh, increased risk of dying. So in fact, pregnant women with COVID who get sick are gonna do worse than their counterparts who are not. So that is very important to take in consideration. And the risk for the baby in those cases? So again, we've said that the baby doesn't get directly infected with COVID, but a mom who's, who's, sick. who's yeah. sick, who's systematically ill, there is a higher risk of preterm birth and stillbirth, oh, okay. stillbirth reported in the literature. So there is a secondary effect that's quite serious. Preterm birth and stillbirth can occur in those moms who are, who are overwhelmed by that infection. Okay, so trying to prevent the woman to get infected with bleeding is, is important and we will talk more. So we want to open the, the questions to the public. So please feel free to either unmute yourself or send us questions through the chat. And I think, uh, Dr. Goni, we have a couple of questions. Just before we start, for those who just arrived, this is the Mod Center uh, Talk to the Expert. And I'm very uh, happy and thankful to Dr. Gonick, who has joined us today to share his experience on uh, dealing with patients with COVID-19, pregnant women with COVID-19, and as we will discuss later, uh, how we can prevent and protect the mother and the baby in these difficult uh, times. So. Uh, we have a first question that is, what is the situation of COVID in Detroit 
compared to other communities. Can I show one of my slides? Please. Slide, slide 18. I'm hoping that the uh, audience can see this slide. Um, I actually saw this in the Wall Street Journal, I think last week or the week before. A very scientific journal. Yes, yeah, so we have to believe everything. I, re I rely heavily on the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. We do medicine according to what is in the journal. Uh, but, but the headlines really caught my attention. Um, and it, 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 if you can't read the headlines, uh, vaccines, a tough sell in uh, Tuskegee. Um, and this is just an example of a community that has uh, a significant history related to distrust to the healthcare field and in particular research within the healthcare field mm -hmm. and for a variety of different uh, important uh, historical reasons. But we have a, a similar sort of situation here in Detroit. Hmm. We've got a minority population. We've got a population that can sometimes be distrustful of the healthcare system and in particular research and justification. I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of reason to be suspect or be concerned, but it becomes a tough sell to get them to come in if they're sick. And so sometimes we see them late in the course of their disease, and that's already a problem because we've missed a window of opportunity. We might be able to yeah. get them healthier. And as it relates to the COVID vaccine, they're very reluctant to take the vaccine. And this population is really important to us because they're the ones who are vulnerable for the infection. They're the ones who are getting the brunt of the disease and the pandemic, and yet they're also the ones reluctant to uh, take wow. the vaccine. And they are the ones who have been infected more than other populations. That's, that's been true across the entire United States, States and across the rest of the world as well. Those populations that um, are minority populations or populations that are socioeconomically deprived populations, uh, they're not one and the same. And so um, both groups uh, have seen the brunt of the disease, of the pandemic, and yet that's the group that's the hardest to convince, if you will, to it's take okay. the vaccine. I think one day we have to do a discussion why this continuous attack against the medicine, the practice of the medicine and the science and the research. Because I think it's not only here in Detroit, it's in general in, in the world, unfortunately. So um, we're getting a lot of questions and I appreciate So please uh, feel free to continue. Can you speak to the transmission of the COVID-19, so this is the vaccine. We'll help a little before, we start answering the questions about the vaccine in a minute. So let's see, uh, in, Alisa, if you look at some questions about still the infection, and then we will go to the vaccine in a minute. So let me ask you another question before uh, we go to answer those. Um, um, we heard, we, we asked about why some pregnant women are more sensitive and you answered very nice. So now let's go to the vaccine. The, the general question, should pregnant women be vaccinated? Yes or not? Well, if we answer that question, they're gonna turn off the, <laughs> you know, the, the recording. So you, know, you save the hanging, you know, the, the, the answer for the end. Um, it, it, that's the question. It really is very important. I, I think very few people will argue that the currently available uh, COVID vaccines are not efficacious. And people understand that the, there's efficacy there. There's differences between the different vaccines and there's more to come, I think, in terms of understanding the mm -hmm. efficacy. But I think most people would agree these are efficacious, efficacious vaccines. And in terms of safety, again, you can get general consensus, I think, here as well, that these vaccines are safe. So the question is, what about in the pregnant woman? 
Yes. It's a very complicated answer, I think. May I ask Dave Rook, before yeah, we go yeah, out, let's go a little in order because, you know, it, it is it's extremely important. I would like that everybody understand. So we're talking about vaccine. There is a vaccine and you say it should be vaccinated. But let's understand, what is this vaccine? So at the present time, there's close to 200 candidate vaccines 200 in the pipeline 170 something vaccines last i read at one out is the one that also we would like to read <laughs> <laughs> that, that are in the pipeline right now worldwide yeah so there's a lot of stuff going on related to vaccine development for covid uh, of those 60 or 70 or so are actually relatively advanced in terms of where they are in terms of their study there are currently in the united states three approved vaccines under a emergency utilization uh, act that was um, decided by uh, federal authorities. And so we have available to us in the United States, three vaccines. Two of them are messenger RNA vaccines. And one of them is an adenovirus vector vaccine. Wow, those are tough, tough words. <laughs> we have to, to, to uh, dissect a little bit. I, I practiced saying it a couple of <laughs> times before coming here. So, um, the two messenger RNA vaccines are relatively, they're not identical, but they're very, very similar, certainly in terms of the platform. So that can we talk a little bit, what, what, what is a messenger RNA? Okay, so in order for our cells to produce proteins that we, that we need to survive, each of those cells produce proteins through a mechanism where um, a genetic coding tells the cells to produce certain proteins. And it's the messenger RNA as one of those genetic counterparts within that coding system that will trigger protein production within the cells that then leads to whatever the it's cell is. It's like the recipe for cooking uh, a dinner. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. It's how to, what, what do you put, what do you add and so on. Yeah. And these vaccines are very interesting because they're new. Um, not that they you know, haven't been around, they've been around 10, 20 years yeah, already. Even more, yeah, but, exactly. But, but in fact, they're new to us in terms of you know, clinical use of vaccines. But these vaccines, they take a piece of messenger RNA, a piece of this genetic material, they encode it in a lipid nanoparticle. And this from the virus, yeah? Right, so, yeah, so the messenger RNA actually is the virus, the genetic piece of the virus that tells how to make the bumps on the outside of the virus. The, the crown spike, that they call them. Yeah, crown, the crown and spike proteins, right. And so it's that messenger RNA that's, that's put inside a lipid um, nanoparticle that gets injected into the patient, into the host. The um, so this nanoparticle is taken up. So these nanoparticles have substance like there's a transporters. Correct. Transported into the cell. So the host now has it in the cell. The messenger RNA now tells the host cell to make these proteins that get put on the surface of that cell. And now our bodies are able to identify that antigen, that abnormal uh, piece on top of the cell and can produce antibodies against it. And that's how we protect ourselves by preemptively producing antibodies against these spike proteins so the next time our body sees the spike protein, say in a in the viral real virus, infection, right? Our body's already prepared to make those antibodies to attack that uh, virus and to hopefully eradicate it. Fantastic. So this is an important aspect because as we know, in all the finds in the journals, in the scientific journals, um, Facebook and, and all the famous ones, it, there is so many ideas that 
these vaccines are injecting the virus. And I think we should clarify that. So very important because people should understand that this is not um, giving somebody the virus. This is giving them a piece of the genetic code that produces a piece of the virus, but it doesn't cause the virus to be infected, nor does it go into the host's DNA, which is the main genetic body that keeps us. So it doesn't are. incorporate into our body. Correct. And it's not going to induce us mutations that will create Correct. some monsters. Correct. Okay. So, so all it, its only purpose is to get inside the host and to use the host generating mechanisms to produce these spike proteins. And that's all it does. So it doesn't infect the individual. It doesn't change their DNA. It doesn't go into their genetic material or their genetic code. So, and that's why the, the vaccine has been identified to be safe through um, a variety of different levels of testing. Oh, so that is an interesting thing because one of the aspects that people always say is, oh, they were able to put all this vaccine in such a period of time, they didn't do all the regulations. What are the steps that the government requires in order to bring a product from the research into the patients? So I'm gonna actually show you another slide. Um, which slide is it? Slide number five. It's there somewhere. There you go. So hopefully everyone can see this slide. It's, it's a schematic slide that um, talks about phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four components of research. And actually before phase one is all that bench work that goes on that looks at uh, a candidate vaccine, let's say in this circumstance, and can it do certain things in terms of effectiveness, safety, and not cause abnormalities. And, and usually do it's done in animals, right, rather than in petri so dishes, then in animals, so. different animal models, then eventually it gets to phase one. So phase one really is that um, part of research where uh, you get a few individuals and you um, test this under those circumstances, carefully monitored, carefully looked at. What you're looking at dosages, you're looking at uh, immediate effects, serious safety-related issues, and so on. So it is was, is this product able to induce a toxic effect? Correct. Yeah. The, the so, one we don't want, right? Exactly. A, a bad so effect. we want to see that it's produced a toxic if effect. If phase one works and we see some positive results, it will go on to phase two. Phase two is really sort of a dosing, safety, are we able to see certain responses that we're expecting to see in the human host who gets the vaccine? So under these circumstances, you're talking about a couple hundred people getting the vaccine or getting the whatever is being tested. Phase three is the big study, and that's the one most people hear about. That's where you have thousands of individuals and for the vaccine uh, studies, where you look at thousands of individuals, and now you're looking for efficacy. You're looking for the benefit of the vaccine, but still looking at safety. Okay. And once you achieve that, and that's what's happened with the three vaccines that are approved under emergency usage, they went through a phase three trial or a series of phase three trials and demonstrated clear efficacy. There was their endpoints were met in a positive way and the vaccines appeared to be safe. Under these circumstances, they now brought it in this case to uh, the federal government through the FDA. So Dr. Garnick, let me interrupt you here and let me ask you directly. Okay. What step was cut for developing of this vaccine? Not a single step. 
And that's the important question. I think this is a very good important question. Because everyone says, well, how did they get the vaccine so quickly to market? Yes. I'll tell you how they did it. First, these vaccines were around in certain forms already. So it wasn't like they came up with it from It's not a new one. invention. Yeah. It's something that they were already trying. For example, some of these vaccines, the uh, adenovirus vaccine uh, that's recently been approved, has we'll a, talk about that in some has, questions about Johnson has Johnson. Has an Ebola uh, vaccine made with the adenovirus, a Zika um, uh, uh, vaccine for the Zika infection with an adenovirus. So these have been around. So it's not like they're brand new. They the just other, came out. It was other, also more for cancer, yeah? Well, right, Many the, of these were vaccination for cancer patients. Correct, correct. The, the other thing is there were already trial networks in place. So it wasn't like they had to start from scratch in terms of getting large populations of individuals those networks were in place. And most importantly, what the companies did, and this was through a lot of discussion, they began producing the vaccines before they were done with the phase three trials in preparation of having a vaccine available if the trials were successful. And there was a lot of money. It cost because a it costs a lot of money. And that's what it stops many of these things to move to the clinic, that, that's which exactly, is another that's, difference. And happened. the last piece is, the federal government through the FDA, the CDC, and so on, they moved everything off the table and put this first and foremost in front of them to look at. So instead of taking weeks to months, like it normally does for these reviews, these reviews were done in days to weeks. So when in a, way, in a way- When you combine all that, that's how we've gotten a vaccine or a series of vaccines available for use up until this point. So in a way, this is an example that when there is wellness, somebody really wanted there is the money and the technology. We can bring things very quickly. Remarkable. It's remarkable. Because yes. eh? usually when to bring drugs to therapy and so on, it's 10 years. But it's not because there is shortcuts. And we can it's do because, it safely. And we can, we do, can do it safely. safely. It's amazing. Yes. This is an example how we could move things if there is the willingness and the money. So we, so we have two messenger um, RNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna. The J&J. J&J. Right. People are asking, let me read a question of one of our listeners here. Uh, can you also speak to the major of Detroit declining the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for his population? Oops. <laughs> wow. Well, maybe if, uh, whoever asked, why do you think we should ask, or why uh, we should ask the, um, the major? This is a question from, um, I think, is this yeah, question... Hi, hi. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Please go ahead. Th thank you for your presentation. My name is Camille Claremont, OBGYN in New York. So I appreciate that. And so um, really happy to hear your experiences and uh, it's really appreciated uh, for this audience. Thank you. I, I, I read on the on the news that the mayor of Detroit declined um, accepting about 6,200 doses of J&J &J because it its, effective, its effectiveness is like what, 74% or so compared to 94% or 95 for Pfizer and Moderna. So just wanted to get your opinion regarding why that might've happened. Um, and and so so what are some steps to, to advocate for that? And the other comment I wanted to make is I think, I think there are people of color that, that do remember to ski, but I think it's current, um, I think it's current mistrust of current issues, not so much past historical issues why people are concerned. And 
And there's also equity issues. So there are people who want it and really just can't get it. People of color who can't get it. There's inequities in, a, in obtaining the vaccine. So sorry for asking three questions, but but I have No, to. no, it's fine. This is very no, important. You're, you're from New York. You're allowed to ask three questions. Because <laughs> we're bossy and we don't take no for an answer. So thank oh, you. Boy. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> so really important topics that you've brought up. Um, real quickly in terms of the uh, issue of Tuskegee, you're 100% right. We, we can't just say it's one historical event. These are ongoing inequities. These are ongoing concerns. They need to be addressed. Look at the inclusion of minority groups within some of these trials, only a few percentage points in some of these trials. How do you trust something if you've not had your own population studied? We've talked about that for pregnancy specifically as well. If you don't study pregnant women, then how can you say it's safe in pregnant women? This is an ongoing issue, 100% right. The yeah. inequities in terms of avail availability of vaccine, um, getting to the place to get the vaccine and so on are all real issues and certainly need to be addressed. Unfortunately, we're not gonna answer those questions now. I'd like to go back to your first question about um, the um, adenovirus vector vaccine or the J&J &J vaccine, which is just in the last couple of days been released for approval um, for emergency use as well. Uh, it is a different vaccine. It's an adenovirus vector vaccine. We can certainly talk about that because it's not the same as a messenger RNA vaccine. Its efficacy is different than the other two vaccines and, the, and comparing those two, it's also different. The problem is you can't compare apples to oranges. And here's what's happened. The J&J vaccine had a different population. Their study was done later than the first two vaccines, and therefore there were likely to be more resistant viruses around and therefore a reduced efficacy as we're seeing with the messenger RNA vaccines as well. They also looked at different endpoints. So you have to be able to make sure you're comparing the right things. One looked for symptomatic disease, one looked for serious disease, one included the entire population. So they're not apples to apples. And that's one of the problems when you talk about, should I take this one? Is this one more effective? What is currently recommended through uh, public health circles is take the vaccine that's available to you. That is take the vaccine um, that is available at the time. And you shouldn't shop for a most effective vaccine or a better vaccine. And again, you should look at them in a very similar sort of way. If you're offered the J&J &J vaccine, what public health officials are saying is take the vaccine. And, and, and why the mayor has uh, this, I just learned it by, <laughs> from you telling us why our mayor has decided not to accept the vaccine. I, I can't speak to that because I don't know the background on it. And, and I don't think that is really a scientific base to decline one from the other ones. Thank you but they're so different. Uh, the, adeno, um, uh, the adenovirus vaccine is very interesting. It also has been around for a while. It's also been tested so in other, many other for other pathogens. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, it does seem to be an effective vaccine. It did pass its um, primary endpoints in order to get put before the FDA for approval. Uh, and again, it looks like uh, it's going to be an effective vaccine for COVID uh, infection. Fantastic. Thank you. Peter, we answer your question? Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate your comments. Thank you for your question. So we have another one again following. Do you recommend vaccination for pregnant women or for women trying to get pregnant? So I think you have to take, it, it, it is a hard question to answer. At the present time, 
Although the data are extremely limited, at the present time, it appears as though pregnancy is not a contraindication for administration of any of the currently approved vaccines. The question is, you know, and we get asked this all the time, pregnant women do have additional risks related to this infection because they're pregnant. We've already said that. So if you actually look at guidelines for administering these vaccines, they say if you fall into a high risk group of which pregnancy, by the way, does meet that criteria, then the vaccine should be considered for administration. There is, as, I, as best I know, there is no data to suggest that the vaccine is unsafe in pregnancy, either to the mother or to the fetus or to the subsequent baby. So I know of no data, and if anybody online knows of any data, I'd like to hear about it, that says that the vaccine is unsafe in pregnancy. I understand the theoretical concerns, but again, at the present time, there's nothing that tells us it's an unsafe vaccine, and the pregnant woman is at higher risk, as we've already talked about. And uh, uh, Dr. Gonick, there was also during the clinical trials, uh, young women who were in the clinical trial and they got pregnant while they were in the clinical trial. So clearly by receiving the vaccine before the pregnancy, it didn't affect, they got pregnant. The, yeah. the, the reason we can't say an absolute is because there just isn't enough data to say it's absolutely safe or uh, here are the absolute risks. And again, it's a shame because pregnant women were not included in any of the trials for any of the three vaccines. Now they do have ongoing studies that will include pregnant women now, and there's lots of data being collected uh, in the phase four part of the trial, which is after the vaccine has been approved, they're still collecting that data through a number of different sources, both industry sources and federal government sources and local sources as well. And so we will be generating more and more data. But again, from my perspective right now, I see um, a safe and effective vaccine. Um, it likely has the same status within a pregnant patient. And again, by definition, a pregnant woman falls in, into that higher risk category. So let me, let me put now in, in the constants, let's summarize a little of this. So the vaccine is giving you a little piece of RNA of the sick. It's not giving you virus. It's going to make you hurt but compared to having the whole virus, who may be more detrimental, in simple words, better get the vaccine and not the virus. Correct? Right. So if you right. So if you knew, if you had a crystal ball and you knew you were going to get infected with the virus, it's clearly more beneficial. But to unfortunately, get the I don't think anybody here has that crystal ball. So so <laughs> if a person said, look, I live on a desert island where it's just me. First of all, you're not likely going to get pregnant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you live on a desert island and you're pregnant and you have no exposure risk, then there's no reason to take the vaccine. Absolutely, yeah. But for everyone else in the world who doesn't have that sort of isolation, and nor are we recommending, as you said earlier, putting someone in a plastic bubble and keeping them away. Yeah. But if you're the normal individual and you have the risk of exposure, then again, the vaccine makes sense. And the higher your risk, the more the vaccine See. makes sense. So if you're a pregnant healthcare worker, even mm. more so if you work in a nursing home. Or you have little children so. who are going to the, 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 the kindergarten and exposed to that. <laughs> so again, when you look at levels of risk, you can see it additive. And again, if you look at the current recommendations, the current recommendations say just that. If you fall into a higher risk group, again, 
you should be included within the vaccine group that gets given the vaccine at that time. And, and in my mind, a pregnant woman doesn't go to the front of the line because she's pregnant, but certainly a pregnant woman stays in line in order to get the vaccine. And depending on her risk exposure, she may move up or back in that line. Um, so we have another question here. How long after the second dose of vaccine is safe for a woman to get pregnant? So it's a difficult question to answer. Uh, I would say that there's no reason not to get pregnant after receiving the vaccine unless you've had a systemic response to the, to the vaccine. So if you had um, a serious allergic reaction or something, obviously you need to get better uh, after that. But there's no specific delay in trying to get pregnant after you've received the vaccine. There is another interesting question here. How has coronavirus affected IVF treatment? So let's clarify what is IVF. So again, you're more the expert <laughs> than I am. Uh, in vitro fertilization is what I think the IVF question comes yes. from. And I don't see the... Uh, and IVF is an assistant reproduction for women that cannot get pregnant. Yeah. Right, no, no, you're exactly right. Um, <laughs> I don't think the pandemic itself or the vaccine has any effect on IVF except like every other what's considered an elective procedure or procedure that isn't emergent. I know people have been put off in terms of uh, workup for infertility and therefore uh, being offered definitive therapies like in vitro fertilization for infertility. But I don't think um, the COVID infection or the vaccine itself has a direct impact but the indirect impact is that we are delaying many of these, what we're calling elective activities until after the pandemic, or at least until after we received vaccine and seen a reduction in the pandemic. In our own offices, we're seeing uh, more and more patients come in for routine care, for mm -hmm. uh, elective gynecologic care. And so I think that door is now opening up and we're seeing more normal activities uh, because we see a reduction in the pandemic activity and we're seeing people being more and more protected with effective vaccines. Fantastic. There is a, a question here. It's an interesting question. Let's see. But should I take COVID-19 vaccination in pregnancy except alcohol and cigarette? What else should I, I avoid? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... It's a very interesting question. I love it because it's, it has a lot of message here. And thank you for the person who put that question. So really interesting. COVID vaccine, alcohol, and cigarettes. Okay, I'm not sure the connection exactly. Um, if we're talking about pregnancy, yes, no, and no. So the vaccine to me still makes sense uh, once the patient has, understands the currently available information, the limitations and so on to offer her vaccination during pregnancy. Clearly we um, discourage smoking and certainly discourage alcohol use related to pregnancy. Um, if you were to say what other things to avoid when I'm trying to get pregnant or during pregnancy, there's some obvious things. Uh, x-rays, for example, if a person had uh, a lot of x-ray exposure, that's a concern related to pregnancy, in particular early in pregnancy. If a person were exposed to a teratogen, a teratogen is a, a chemical or a drug that we know causes uh, abnormalities in the fetus, you obviously would want to avoid those. But they're, they're just a handful of known teratogens. Most of the drugs that we uh, see patients on are not human teratogens or not known to be human teratogens. So uh, that's not a concern. But really the best answer is speak to your obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, if you're contemplating pregnancy, make sure that you're as healthy as you can be. Otherwise, uh, for example, if you've got diabetes, 
You want to make sure your diabetes is well controlled, hypertension is well controlled. We recommend that every woman that has the potential for getting pregnant be on folic acid supplementation, 400 micrograms every day. Uh, it's easy to get that supplement. You don't need a prescription for it. That reduces your risk, for example, of neural tube defect by a substantial yeah. amount. So there are a lot of things you can do to tune up for a pregnancy or to prepare for a pregnancy. Um, and I don't know that they're in the same category as COVID vaccination. Uh, and again, I wouldn't delay COVID vaccine if I were thinking about getting pregnant. Fantastic. But now following that aspect, and now we're, let's talk in a little about the baby. We want to move a little baby. We have a question here. Could you please discuss and contrast the maternal immune response to the vaccine with maternal immune activation that has been shown to cause neurodevelopmental problems? I need a lifeline. <laughs> I need to call somebody, somebody who knows this topic so much better than so I you do. you got to give me a phone call? <laughs> uh, Thank uh, you for that. <laughs> So it, it, you know, again, from, from my standpoint, the way the vaccine works, just to uh, summarize that, is the vaccine induces an immune response in the mother. She produces IgG antibodies. The antibody crosses the placenta and the baby is passively protected, or the fetus and then baby is passively protected against the COVID infection. At least we presume that's what's going to happen. By the way, that data still needs to be generated. Giving mom the vaccine, we know it protects her, does she passively protect her baby? That is one by, case by that's showing that. Yeah. It's a really important question. Yeah. Lots of data being generated right now in terms of is this also a benefit for the newborn if mom gets the but vaccine? Let's keep that for a moment. Let's let's talk about it about this because this is a fascinating subject. Maternal inflammation. That I, I love that aspect. So what in general we consider maternal inflammation is a condition when the mother is exposed, as you correctly pointed out, environmental factors that produce a, a massive, a chronic inflammatory response in the mother. Or it's true, viral infections. Viral infections induce a chronic a state of activation of the mother. Yeah. And that a state of fight, the struggle or the battle between the, the mother, the immune system of the mother and those foreign, anti, foreign bodies like the viruses, the, the result of the fight can reach the fetus and will have effects in the development of the brain and so on. But I want to reiterate this aspect is a chronic, long-term battle trying to, to stop that virus. It, the vaccine doesn't induce that chronic inflammation. It's very short. So there is no the classical what defined as maternal inflammation. So definitely, the inflammation that the vaccine induces is totally different from the maternal inflammation that an infection will induce. Ch give me the clipboard. I want to ask you a few questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think we had a little problems with the sound. Are we okay now? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think we have another questions from, uh, from the public. Oh, there was a message here. Uh, I believe the major has now reversed his position on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Oh, the mayor. Uh -huh. The mayor, uh -huh. sorry. Uh, and has now accepted the vaccine with the intent to distribute in Detroit. Great, so, great. It's a good the, decision. The, the more vaccine available, the better. Uh, again, we are starting to catch up in terms of um, having supplies available to be able to administer the vaccine. 
And again, the, the, gen, the, the main message, public health message is, if you've got a vaccine offered, take it. Uh, if you're inclined to take the vaccine, there's no other specific reason you shouldn't take the vaccine, then whichever of the vaccines is available, take it. That's, that's the key message, I think. So now let's talk about, at least I learned from my mother that she cared for me since I was conceived. Yeah. And, and I think the, the mother is protecting the baby even in uterus. How the mother protect the baby against infections in uterus? So during the pregnancy, and again, this is really your area. Uh, the but you are the expert. <laughs> I'm an expert enough to know who the experts are. <laughs> so um, the placenta is incredibly important. It's not just a, a piece of uh, tissue or, or a mass that gives baby food and oxygen. The placenta has a lot of other functions, including protection functions for the fetus. And so that placenta is working over time during the entire pregnancy to help protect the baby. As it relates to vaccination, um, if you give mom something that induces an immune response, she again produces antibodies. These antibodies are called IgG antibodies. Mm. And we know these antibodies cross the placenta. Passively cross. So the, the mother is sending those immunoglobulins, so those the, antibodies. The mother's had a response. She's got the antibodies to protect her, but she shares those same antibodies with her baby passively. See, I always say the mothers are so generous. It's amazing. <laughs> and once those antibodies go across, we now know the baby, at least for other infections, the baby now has passive protection for when the baby is born. And this is true for pertussis, which we know a lot of data on. It's true for flu, and that's why we currently offer as a routine to every pregnant woman in the United States, Tdap or tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis vaccination during the pregnancy and flu vaccine during flu season, again, with a major intent to, to protect the baby once the baby is born. Now, the data isn't in yet, but as you've said, there's at least one article that looks at infection, another article that you and I know about that's looked at um, uh, vaccination, and we do see the IgG antibody crossing the placenta and going to the baby. This could mean, and we hope it does mean, that these babies born of mothers who are vaccinated will also be passively protected until those antibodies wear down or until they go away. And that usually takes three or four months, right? About right in terms of the passive antibody effect going away. So we may actually be hitting two patients yeah. with the vaccine, not one, protecting the mom during the pregnancy, but also protecting her newborn once the baby's Especially born. Especially those critical times that is the newborn. When the baby is, the baby is at, weak. at risk. Yeah. Um, but again, the data needs to still be generated, but there's no reason to suspect it's not going to go that way. We know it's true for many, many other types of infection, and specifically for pertussis and flu, we absolutely know that, and that data has been around for many years. So the good things that the mother is producing will share with the baby, and it will protect the baby. I, I don't know if we have another more questions about this, this aspect. Otherwise, we're going to move to some difficult ones. Um, I thought those were the difficult <laughs> ones. <laughs> uh, that maybe is not exactly uh, your area because now it's about lactation. You have some questions about lactation. Okay. What about lactating mothers? Is it safe for them to receive the vaccine? So the, what makes this easy is that nobody knows the absolute <laughs> answer. So 
Um, one, I can have an opinion either way because there's no data to support it one way or the other. Uh, again, experts, I think, would say that um, there's no reason not to receive the vaccine if you are breastfeeding. Uh, and there is transfer antibody into the breast milk, more IgA than IgG. Um, but again, there does seem to be some protection, at least for respiratory infections for the baby uh, after the baby is born through antibody transfer, that mechanism as well. Now, we don't actually know um, the COVID infection or the vaccine, its antibody production and what happens with lactation, but I certainly don't think it's a problem. In other words, again, you're not giving the mother a live vaccine that's going across, yeah. it's potentially gonna affect the baby. You're just having her generate an immune response, which again, does present in the breast milk and therefore should be protective. We are major fans of breastfeeding as the right thing to do to, for a healthy mom, healthy baby. And again, COVID and vaccine shouldn't change that. In fact, it may actually augment that recommendation. I would like to add, and I am very happy what you just say about the lactation, because many years ago, I don't know if people in the audience will remember HIV, the time of HIV. I was involved in a study in Africa because HIV was transmitted through the milk to the babies. So the World Health Organization came with a clever idea, don't breastfeed in order to prevent the infection. And guess what? The children died. Wrong answer. Exactly. Breastfeeding, even if the mother was infected, protected the babies against the infection. So breastfeeding is critical because it's transmitting, as you correctly pointed out, the, the antibodies, the immunoglobulins, and even immune cells from the mother. So it's very, very important. And I hope we answered that question. Um, I have seen some suggestions to wait until end of first trimester of pregnancy to receive vaccines. Thoughts? Well, yeah, no, we hear this all the time as well. Let me frame this so you understand why that thought process occurs. We know that the first three months, the first 12 weeks of pregnancy is, that's called the first trimester, we know that that period of time is the highest risk for spontaneous miscarriage, regardless of anything else we're talking about. Of the miscarriages, pregnancy losses that occur relate to pregnancy, the overwhelming majority of those occur within the first trimester. And in fact, we tend to quote to patients a one in five or a 20% risk of miscarriage for everyone who gets pregnant. That's Pretty high so, number. 20%. It's very difficult to get pregnant and maintain a pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And so, if you add on top of that a vaccine, and you happen to miscarry, there's going to be this connection drawn between why well, I received the vaccine and then I miscarried. It must have been because of the vaccine. And so, because of that, many people think about, well, maybe we should wait outside the first trimester, outside the first 12 weeks, so that we don't draw that connection. That's not true in terms of recommendations. For example, we currently recommend if you're in the flu season to receive your vaccine anytime during the pregnancy, not to delay outside of the first trimester. So here's a good example of what we do currently, and that is offer the vaccine when the vaccine is available. We're in the middle of a very serious pandemic. I would say, again, from my perspective, and I don't have data to support it, but again, my best clinical intuition is um, that you should get the vaccine if you're planning to take it during pregnancy when it becomes available to you. I don't think you specifically should avoid the first trimester. 
again, understanding the caveat that people have said, try not to connect the two because people will give it a bad name, if you will. The vaccine has caused the miscarriage. When in fact, again, 20% of the time people are going to miscarry, regardless of what we're talking about related to vaccination. And that is always the problem of giving that right advice because there is a lot of noise going, or 35 women has been diagnosed to miscarriages that received the, the, the vaccine. But I was looking a little of the data and 100,000 women has been vaccinated. And if you put the 35 in those, it represents 0.035%. When 10% of every of the pregnancies end in miscarriages. So clearly there is more risk of miscarriage by getting pregnant at all than by taking the vaccine, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but again, that is the, the, the concern of the mother with inflammation, what will happen to the development of the baby and so on, which still is a challenge, especially for the stress that many mothers goes with these ideas. Um, Let's move on to another question. Messenger RNA vaccine has been around for about 10 years. Are there any long-term autoimmunity or idiopathic antibiotic or toxic problems? Yeah, uh, if partial spike, oh my goodness, is it, if partial spike associated with cellular protein as non-self, can autoimmunity result from the vaccine? That's the main question. Yeah, so we don't have data. We don't have long-term data on the COVID vaccine for sure. It's just been around for a relatively short, very short period of time. Uh, the question of autoimmune effects from any vaccine or from any outside exposure, whether it's a natural viral infection or from uh, a vaccine related to a virus or bacteria, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, churn here, a lot of confusion here. Uh, I can tell you with pretty good certainty, at least as of right now, there's no connection. But again, it would be unfair to say, and that's the right answer, because we really need to give this much more time to better understand the longevity of the vaccine and the, longev the longevity of the effects. I will remind everyone that what have we learned about COVID, the infection itself? We thought it was just a respiratory infection. Now, what are we learning? It affects the brain, it affects the kidney, it affects other organ systems, long-term effects, including long effect, lots yeah. of behavioral-related effects as well. So, uh, yeah, we're concerned about any vaccine, any new drug, anything that we do that's new, but we can't ignore the fact that the pandemic itself is taking its toll, not just on acute-related illnesses, but on long-term related illnesses. And these are being defined more and more clearly as we go on through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So again, don't ignore it, don't blow it off, don't say it doesn't happen. We need to study it. We need to follow it. But please don't forget that the infection itself is a serious, serious uh, problem. Yeah. And, and again, I see one of the questions about the toxicity and so on. The messenger RNA vaccination, as you correctly pointed out, is not something that just came out last year. Including we have been working with those, especially for vaccination. And there has been clinical trials with cancer patients and so on to develop vaccines against cancer tumors. And it has been a study the toxicity. So the, the system, this messenger RNA and the encapsulation is not something that was done yesterday. It exists for many, many years. And before there were clinical trials in humans, there were years of oh, yeah. bench work that was done. There were years of DART. I forgot what DART stands for, but DART is 
the series of experiments that takes place before you do the phase one right. trial that um, I'm sure somebody online knows what that stands for, <laughs> um, that is done to look at toxicities and serious developmental effects and so on. Nothing has turned up in any of those studies of any concern. Again, they're not the final answer, but there are at least some reassurances because of it. Fantastic. So as you can see, my reading, my eyes are, are, are getting bad. So if you want to speak, please raise your hand using the the uh, in the section of the uh, in in the section of the participants. Yeah, there is a hand raised by the. Please go ahead. Unmute yourself, or you can unmute. I think it's Alvin Lager Rickerson. If you can unmute yourself, if you have a question. If you have a question, please unmute yourself and we will- Hi, can you hear me? We can hear you. So can you um, can you go back about the IGA, IgG, for about the um, lactating mother? Sorry, I wanted uh, more clarity on that. Sure. Yeah, I wish I could give you more clarity. I told you everything I know about it. <laughs> um, we, we know that, um, that in the breast milk, um, the predominant immunoglobulin that's important in terms of protection, I think, is the IgA um, uh, immunoglobulin. So, exactly. So they, there is multiple types of antibodies based on what is they're going to respond to. Yeah. So the IgA belongs to the type of the protection against external factors in the skin or in mucosas, what we call mucosas, the mouth, and so on. And that's what is transported through the uterus or through the blood to the baby and the milk because it's in the in the in the in the mammary glands of the mother and and we know that these IgA antibodies are protective um, related to a number of other um, studies that have been done in the past not related to covid so there's reasonable to there's reasonable thought processes here that suggest that IgA may be important as it relates to breastfeeding and protection of the mom. There's also, by the way, other immunoglobulins. There's IgG, IgD, I think, as well. Yes. That can be identified um, in the breast milk. And so uh, there is a active um, immunologic milieu um, that may be protective of this infection as well. Uh, I don't, I, I think, I can't say that it's for sure, and I can't say it's absolute. I can say there's good reason to, to suspect it might be useful. Um, but what I think is more important is there doesn't seem to be a downside. In other words, uh, I don't think getting COVID antibody um, into the breast milk should have a deleterious effect on that baby. Again, again, I don't know for sure, but biologic plausibility tells me it's not likely to be a concern. Absolutely, I agree with you. Because you have to remember that in the milk of the mother is not only the food that the baby is eating in order to grow. The mother is also populating, giving the defense to the baby against the environment. Remember, we, we were not born always in a sterile uh, hospital and taking care. We were run in the camp, in the fields. Yeah. And in the fields, everything was dirty. So if the mother was not giving the baby the adequate protection, we would not be here. So the way that have the mother protected the baby is not just giving the food, but also the immunological protection against the environment. And not only that, which is important in the milk, the mother, in addition to this immunological protection, is giving bacteria that will populate the gastrointestinal tract of the baby. 
very important protection. And with that bacteria, because also what you mentioned, the monoglobulins and so on, very strong donation of the mother through the meal to the baby to keep that baby alive. That is an important aspect and the message that I would like you to take. The, the breastfeeding not only feeds the baby, is also transferring the immunological experience. Whatever the mother during pregnancy undergoes and develops defenses, she will give to the baby. All right, thank you for clearing that up. That was uh, great. Thank you. Um, developmental and reproductive toxicity is DART. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I knew somebody knew what it stood for. Thank you. These are the initial basic science studies or questions that are always done on newly developed drugs or vaccines and so on. And these are done, the ones done in the laboratory before these get in, the product gets introduced into the phase one, two, and three trials. Fantastic. So we have taken a, an hour of your time, and I would really appreciate. I know we, you are a very busy, and there was no calls for any, any woman they believe in during this hour. So we're thinking also to that. Uh, I don't know if there is any other question. You still have time for a couple of questions. Anything you want. Yeah. Any recommendation regarding anticoagulation in patients who had COVID during pregnancy. Wow. Have you deal with some patients like that? Yes, yes. Uh, it's an important question because, and uh, it, it, there's an informed um, person on the line because they know that COVID infection is associated with a number of um, thrombotic events. And uh, we saw early in the uh, pandemic that patients were doing fine in terms of the initial infection, but we're having difficulties with blood clotting. Uh, and because of that, um, there was an advancement made in terms of anticoagulation for patients seriously ill with COVID because we knew that the virus had as a secondary effect um, an, an effect on the um, clotting system with this, within those individuals. So a pregnant woman as well, interestingly enough, and again, many people know this, Pregnancy is a time of increased thrombosis as yeah. well. So now you're combining those two potential concerns. One, that she's pregnant and therefore she's got higher risk for uh, thrombotic events. Uh, and you, it, let's assume she's infected with a serious infection with COVID. That also adds to her concern. So personally, again, without strong data one way or the other, I would absolutely consider some form of anticoagulation, either prophylactic or therapeutic, for pregnant women who have to be seriously ill with COVID. That would make perfect sense uh, uh, under those circumstances. Again, it's empiric thinking, but I think reasonable thinking. Good. So why don't we wrap it up, summarize it a little. So COVID is dangerous for a pregnant woman. So the best way to protect the mother and protect the baby is don't get infected. <laughs> yeah? Now, if you cannot avoid of getting infected, protect yourself and protect the baby. And the best ways to protect is vaccination. Comparing vaccination with infection, the risk of the infection is just hundreds, you know, thousand times more dangerous than the vaccine. So the summary to all of you, and I hope that is the message we can give you, protect yourself, protect the mothers and protect the babies. And if you cannot avoid getting infected, please make sure that you get a vaccine. And again, I want to thank you for all the knowledge that you have shared with us today. Uh, I look, we look forward for 
the next meeting who will be next month in April 8 at 6 p.m. again. And this time we're not going to talk about COVID or any vaccines. Uh, we will have the pleasure to have Dr. Jack Sobel, who is the former Dean of the Medical School and distinguished professor at Winstead University. And he will be sharing with us a subject that many women are afraid of us, including men, vaginal infections, diagnosis and management. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much to you and to everybody who came tonight.